God, it's over. You can never harm anyone else ever again. I'm not cool, Kim, at all. My mother was christened Mary Patricia, but from choice was known all her life as Pat. I was named Patricia Mary, but I was called Little Pat. I so despised that woman for what I had suffered at her hands that I decided in my twenties to rename myself, though I've never bothered to change my name by deed poll. Pat Shaw was just sixteen, when at the beginning of World War Two, she first met my father, Ronald Mackenzie. It was in a pub, the White House, in the district of Portsmouth called Milton, just on the borders of Eastney. A Scot from Perthshire, and five years older than her, he was serving in the Royal Marines, stationed at the time at Eastney Barracks. My mother had a job at a first aid centre in nearby Drayton. My father was no matinee idol. He was to start losing his hair at 24. He did have piercing blue eyes and a good sense of humour, although you wouldn't describe him as the life and soul of the party. In many ways, he was rather old-fashioned, a man of few words with a quick temper. I have no memory of him ever kissing me or holding me in his arms. He was away in the war for the first three years of my life, and then he signed on for another ten years and went off to fight in Malaya, so he was an absent father at the best of times. I was out of sight, out of mind. Not once in my entire childhood did he ever tell me he loved me. Mother, by contrast to my balding, thick-set father, was gorgeous to look at. She had a big bust, lovely legs and long brown hair, well-groomed and perfectly manicured nails, always painted bright red. My father couldn't resist her. Unfortunately, he felt a strong physical attraction to a lot of other women too. When I was old enough to understand the expression, my uncle, my mother's younger brother, told me my father had a reputation for being as randy as a butcher's dog. Eventually his philandering seemed almost to unhinge my mother. When she realised, as she did pretty early on, that he'd never abandoned his womanising ways, she turned into the monster she remained. Whether she anyway would have turned out like that, I'll never know. She was seven months pregnant with my elder sister Gloria when her first aid centre was bombed. Portsmouth was a target throughout the war because of the docks. My parents were living in a house in Dunbar Road that was home to her parents, Mary and Robert. On the 11th of July, 1940, while my mother was carrying a jug of water across the yard, she was hit in the waist by flying shrapnel. She was badly injured, yet miraculously she didn't miscarry. Gloria was born in August, on Hailing Island, where my mother had temporarily moved for safety's sake. There wasn't a mark on her. Nineteen months after Gloria arrived, I was born. Although my father was only there when he was on leave, Dunbar Road was now bursting at the seams, so my parents, Gloria and I, moved round the corner to Suffolk Road. The terraced house must have been built in the thirties, and it's still standing today. The corridor was covered in bright green lino, and my sister and I used to put mansion polish on a couple of dusters and slide up and down on them as we cleaned it for my mother. There was a scullery and a little kitchen, but no bathroom, and only an outside toilet. It was a crowded house, although I could have been perfectly happy there if I'd been born into another family. But my parents seemed set against me from the start. My crime was that I wasn't a boy. I'm convinced my mother thought she could have hung on to my father if I hadn't turned out to be a girl. Throughout my childhood, she would often look at me and say, If I could send you back, I would, you ugly little bitch. My looks were my other crime. I was blonde and blue-eyed, but to my mother, 
All that meant was that I'd committed the unforgivable sin of looking like my father, the man she loved and had lost and grown to hate. When it comes to my feelings about my siblings, the only possible exception is Gezi. That's my nickname for Gloria. From the days when, as a small child, I couldn't pronounce her real name. Gezi was always the favourite. I don't blame her for siding with our mother. In our house, survival was the name of the game. Her life wouldn't have been any easier if she started standing up for me. Maybe she'd have started getting knocked about too. My mother was a great one for turning on the charm, if she thought it might get her what she wanted. But when it came to my father, she was fighting a losing battle. I must have been very young when he arrived home with a beautiful belt made up of different coloured squares of leather, which he said he'd bought abroad somewhere. My mother was thrilled and immediately started wearing it. But a little later she found a letter that must have fallen out of one of his pockets. It was from a girl who thanked him for the belt, telling him she would always treasure it. It was the final straw, and it broke my mother's heart. In many ways she was never the same again. As my mother got eaten up with bitterness and turned increasingly to alcohol, so she became more and more abusive and neglectful. She beat me repeatedly throughout my childhood with anything that came to hand. Clothes brushes, wooden coat hangers, brooms. Anything could set my mother off. It was ten times worse if she'd been drinking. She'd eff and blind and run out of the front door into the road in her undies, screaming the place down at any time of day or night. Her favourite tipple was VP port wine. In time, I'd be sent to the off-licence to buy it for her. Sometimes we couldn't afford to eat, but she was never without her drink or her cigarettes. She was a chain-smoker all her life. If my mother was in one of her moods, she'd hit me just because she felt like it. I remember tiptoeing past her in the kitchen on one occasion as she hung over the heavy oven door, threatening to end it all. The gas was never switched on at such moments, of course. As I passed her, she kicked me for no reason. You wouldn't care if I killed myself, would you, you little cow? I ran into the garden and sent up a silent prayer. Please, God, please let her die. Our road was poor but respectable. The husbands were away at war, and the wives were doing their best to cope day by day. They were hard-working and they loved their kids. To them, our mother was a vile, drunken, debauched creature, and it spilled over onto us. We were treated like lepers. Now, as I look back, I see my mother as a woman full of anger and hatred and cruelty. Was she perhaps mentally disturbed? I'll never know. My mother's mother, Grandma Mary, also had a temper, but she'd had a hard life. She was a decent woman and a loyal wife who never looked at another man, even after her husband left her. He gave her no money and wouldn't sign over the lease of Dunbar Road into her name. That meant Grandma was living hand to mouth and always looking for a roof to put over herself and her youngest child, my Uncle Neville, whom she was left to raise single-handedly. To begin with, they came to live in Suffolk Road, but my mother was always picking fights with her for no reason. It must have been very hard at times. I clearly remember Grandma saying to my mother, You're not mad, just plain evil. My guess is that she was probably both in equal measure. My mother first met James McGinley, in fact everyone called him Mac, before I was born. He was already a firm friend of my father's. The same age, they both signed up for the Marines in 1936. It wasn't long before Mac was brought back to Dunbar Road. Mac was a quiet gentleman, but I'd have to say a weak one too. His misfortune was to meet a bully of a woman, 
There was obviously an attraction between my mother and Mac, but I've always believed that she started an affair with him, mainly as a way of making my father jealous. There must have been a period when my mother was sleeping with both my father and Mac. She had another pregnancy after me that went to full term and produced a girl, Rose, who was born with a crippled spine and only lived a matter of days. My mother always swore that the baby was my father's, although I don't see how she could have been absolutely sure. In time, and as it became increasingly clear that my father was never going to return to the fold, she and Matt began to live openly together. In the end, my mother came to accept that she'd never make a go of the marriage. So when Gloria was three or four, and I wasn't much more than a toddler, she took off with Mac. That's when we were placed in our first foster home. My sister and I would spend a few weeks in one, and then be collected again without warning by our mother. A month or so later, we'd be dumped in another. The two things a child wants in life are unconditional love and security. I had neither. Such home life as we had may have been cold and brutal, but better the devil you know. When that permanence was denied to me, my life disintegrated into turmoil. Among my earliest memories is a time when Gezi and I were placed in somewhere called the Services House on the seafront in Southsea. The Services House was for children whose fathers were away, fighting, or who died, and whose mothers couldn't cope. You would stay there until your family situation improved or you were fostered or adopted. After about six months, though, the authorities must have woken up to the fact that Gezi and I had two perfectly able-bodied parents. Yes, my father was in the Marines, but there was no reason why my mother couldn't look after the two little girls. We were taking up much-needed space, so we had to leave. That's when my father did a deal with my mother. She could live in Suffolk Road, with or without Mac, if she paid the rent, and in return she had to reclaim Gloria and me from the services house.